Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. The story of the year, probably the past two years around the world, has been the global pandemic. We entered this year with a winter surge where more than 3,000 people were dying in the country every day. Then came the vaccines. Decades of research into mRNA, messenger RNA, got vaccines to the public in record time. What used to take years took months. Then in June, the Delta strain began spreading more quickly, and by the end of July, it was responsible for the vast majority of all COVID-19 cases in the U.S. After cases started settling down again, now we're facing the new variant called Omicron. One of the first cases in Florida was recently confirmed at Tampa's Haley VA Hospital. Many people have to be wondering if new variants are going to go all the way to Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. To talk about all this are Kevin Sneed, founding dean of the USF Health Tunisia College of Pharmacy. He also serves as senior associate vice president for USF Health. Also with us today is Julio Ochoa, editor of Health News Florida. Gentlemen, welcome to Florida Matters. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks, Steve. All right. First, we'll go to you, Dr. Sneed. Uh, you know, COVID seems to be the gift that never stops giving, right? Are you feeling a wee bit of COVID fatigue, or is this something that health professionals like you just wait all their lives to get a chance to confront? Uh, it's probably a combination of both, to be to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, by this point, I think many of us felt that we would have a lot more control over where we are with the pandemic. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we're all driven to try and help people and help people in communities, more, more specifically. And so, you know, to that extent, we have a responsibility in um I personally feel pretty energized to be able to go out and continue to educate and, and uh, con- you know, continue to learn more about this particular virus. This has probably been a learning experience you couldn't replicate in a laboratory or, you know, in a classroom situation, right? No, there's nothing replicatable about, uh, about COVID-19. And, you know, we're talking li- literally a 102-year event. But, you know, our past experiences have, have prepared many of us for it, and, and uh, I fall in that category as well. Hopefully, it'll be another 102 years before we have I to hope do so. this again, right? <laughs> All right, Julio, you know, we started this year with a new vaccine and hope for eliminating the virus, but the vaccination rate is only at about 69% of eligible Floridians who have received one dose. Why is that? Why, why do we have this vaccine hesitancy going on? Uh, and and the, the number is actually even lower for, for those who have been fully vaccinated or what we say two doses of the Pfizer or Moderna or one of the Johnson & Johnson I mean, we started out, there were lines, you know, around the block to get vaccinated. Uh, There wasn't enough vaccine for the people who wanted it. Um, And the elderly in particular were clamoring for it. People wanted to get back to life as normal. And then as as it went on and it uh, was opened up to other age groups, you started to see, you know, there was initially a big push for people to get vaccinated. And then you started to see a, a waning of desire for the vaccine. And you know, to to some degree, it, there are some, I guess, who will never want to get vaccinated. And I, I think for some of us, that was a surprise that you, you wouldn't want to get the vaccine. But in, in some terms, it, it became a political thing, you know, whether you believe in the science and, and want to get vaccinated or not. 
they tried to make it as easy for as many people who could get it, who wanted it. Some people believe that they can fight it off with their own immunity, and, and some people are right. Some people get it and, and don't get severely sick, but it's, it's hard to tell who those people are going to be, and it's a gamble. It's a gamble with your health and with your life. We'll come back to the political aspect of this in just a minute, but Dr. Sneed, I'd like to ask you, how do you reach people like that, that he was just describing that they don't like vaccines, they don't get their annual flu shots, they avoid needles at all costs? How do you reach out to these people? Well, one tactic I've been able to do, number one, out in the community, and a lot of my work, not exclusively, but much of my work has been focused on um, black and brown communities primarily, um, because there was just such an enormous amount of hesitancy to, uh, to begin with there. Some of it warranted from historical aspects like the Tuskegee experiment, and then just some mistrust in general. But um, I've taken a tact of, number one, meeting people where they are. I'm not here to argue with people about their belief, uh, but I do try and interject science in a way that becomes eminently understandable for them, in a way that they can walk away and remember what I said. And that comes from years of having seen many patients in clinics and, and trying to explain very complex things about their health to them in a way that they can walk away and still remember it when they're walking through the mall. And so uh, we've been successful. We need to be more successful. But I think uh, lately I've been telling people, I want to pull you into my scientific and research world. And then once I get them there, I begin to explain things in a way that uh, with metaphors and different things that they can relate to. And then later on, I've had many people come back and say, yeah, I understood what you said and I, I chose to get vaccinated. And that even happened over the, even the past two weeks here. So, you know, we just have to be persistent and resilient and, and meeting people where they are. So maybe the longer this new variants stay with us, the longer we're battling COVID, the more people may be coming around well, to the to, realization that they need a vaccine? Well, to be perfectly honest, you know, we're watching, you know, people all across the country and the world are watching the largest uh, experiment in their mind, at least, occur. We're, we've had 400 million doses given, uh, 200 million people have received it here in our country, and we're not watching people um, have all of the bad negative effects that people predicted or even thought would, would occur. And so hopefully over time that will continue to win people over and, and they will see that the danger of the virus is far more than anything they could have imagined about the vaccine. Julio, you know, there have been such changes in the COVID picture this year. We all seen the, the charts of the infections and the deaths. It looks like a roller coaster. Everybody's head must be snapping from going up and down so much right now. Take us back to the beginning of the year and give us just a, a picture of the ups and downs that we've gone through. Before the beginning of the year, we had seen the, the vaccine released, and there was this huge hope that, that this was going to put life back to normal and, you know, make it so that we could, you know, do things that we used to do without worrying about getting sick. And it, it was working for a while, and people were getting vaccinated. And, and then, of course, the Delta hit during the summer, and cases surged. We started seeing Fifteen to 20,000, I think at one point we're averaging 22,000 cases a day, which we had never seen in, in previous spikes. The deaths shot up. I, I'd like to give you just a couple numbers here. At the beginning of August, the state reported 39,695 cumulative deaths. Okay, And then by the end of September, that number had jumped to 55,299. So that's 15,000 deaths in just two months. And that's nearly 30 percent of the, the total deaths that we had seen for, for the coronavirus um, to, to that date. 
So it, we were really in the middle of a massive, you know, surge in the coronavirus, unlike anything that we had seen. There's theories about why it, it started to, to wane again, but we started to see it drop after it reached a, a number of the population and, and possibly didn't have anywhere else to go. So, and that's where we are now. We, we've, we've seen cases come down a lot. And when, when cases go up, we see the number of people who want to get vaccinated go up. And then when they come down, they drop down again. Now with the Omicron, we've started to see a surge in, in people who wanted to get vaccinated again. Let's talk about the Omicron variant. We really don't know much about it. It's come from Southern Africa. What is different about this variant than the one we've seen before? That's a very good question. You know, one thing that we know about Omicron is the fact that, uh, well, first of all, the mutations occur the entire time. They have been occurring the entire time. Most of the mutations that occur are actually lethal to the virus. So uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, every mutation results in something bad. Uh, One thing about Omicron that we know, it picked up a piece of genetic material from another virus, uh, very likely another coronavirus that was really responsible for the common cold. And so it became less virulent, we believe. We're hoping that that will hold up scientifically. But that genetic insertion fundamentally made it more transmissible than anything we've seen up up until this point. Um, But fortunately, up at this current time, uh, it has not been as virulent, meaning not as uh, likely to cause severe disease. And it does look a little bit more probably like the like a bad flu or a common cold. Many people reported extreme fatigue in going to the hospital, but we haven't seen the overwhelming uh, organ damage that we found with Delta or with Alpha or the previous, uh, you know, wild type. So uh, genetically, uh, it has mutated, uh, it has gone, gone around the world. It probably will continue to transmit at a very high rate. Um, the question will be whether or not it will completely outcompete the Delta variant. And if that occurs, we don't know what to expect for, you know, after that time period. So we're going to have to wait and see exactly what may occur. So for, for viruses like this, the perfect scenario for them, to use you know them, if we can call it them, is for it to be very transmissible but not fatal to the host, right? You don't want it to be too strong where it kills off the host so it can't replicate, right? So the, the perfect virus is one that transmits very quickly. I would agree with that to a point. Uh, you know, as we mentioned before, you know, viruses are not living things. So it's not making a conscious effort about who is going to infect and not infect. Um, but from a, from a fitness standpoint, yeah, what you're describing is, is very important. It will find a way to learn uh, the host a lot better, and then it will continue to transmit. And as long as it has a host to transmit to, it will continue to, quote, unquote, live. It will continue to exist uh, here on this earth. The transmissibility factor for me is a little bit con- concerning because every time we find something more transmissible, it means it has learned the human body a little bit better than it knew before. We're hoping that in, in a very short amount of time that it will become less virulent and will become like the common cold. But you are exactly correct. The ideal manner for them <laughs> is to continue to be able to transmit from one host to another. Yeah, I hate to give it a personality, but uh, it, it's a bad actor right now. It is a bad actor. So there have been some variants, some mutations that a lot of people haven't heard about, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, prior to Omicron, even in the same region, uh, coming out of South Africa, there had been a, um, a variant I was paying attention to called C.1.2 uh, that at that time had more mutations than anything that we had seen before. But again, it turned out not to be that transmissible. 
And so the fitness of that particular variant uh, did not catch on. As time goes on, you know, we're going to continue to see a lot more variants. And uh, as a friend of mine said the other day, you know, how deep into the Greek alphabet are we going to go? Well, we don't know yet, but we hope that as we continue to move along that it will be less deadly and, and that we are better equipped to handle and manage them either through vaccination or, or, the, or other therapeutics. So for the time being, don't give up your masks, right? This you should the not. Best, you the should not. You should, at this time being, you should not give up your mask. And, and one way or the other, we have to get a better sense of community. Uh, you know, we have to get a better sense of protecting people to your left and to your right. Things that you won't do for yourself, you, we want you to do it for other people. And, you know, maybe later in the show, I'll, I'll share a little bit more about, you know, some of the, the tragic stories that, that haunt me, that, that, that motivate and fuel me to continue doing what I, what I do. You know, one thing we heard so much about when this first started two years ago was herd immunity. Yes. The, you know, okay, not everybody has to get vaccinated, but once people get the disease or they're vaccinated, you build up this natural immunity. Is that still in play or is that just some kind of theory that I'll never touch I, Yeah, I, I think we were all pretty hopeful at one point, but uh, at this current time, I think we've probably um, blown by the opportunity to achieve that. Uh, we are, most of us in the, in the medical and science community are now believing it will become endemic, meaning it will just be part of what we live with. And part of that, a part of it being endemic, we really hope it will be less uh, virulent and, and really cause nothing more than a common cold or a flu eventually. But the concept of herd immunity, we probably had a window. But to be perfectly honest, when we did not vaccinate enough people, even not only in our own country, but around the world, uh, the concept of being able to achieve that you know, was just never going going to come to fruition. So, Julio, it looks like for the time being, we still have to take measures to isolate ourselves, wear masks, not go out to football games and start coughing on your neighbor, despite how many points your team scores, right? Let's talk about the, um, the mandates that have been coming down politically against, you know, schools not being able to keep kids masked, that sort of thing. I hate to bring politics into this, but it seems like politics is invading everything we do these days. So, you know, how did things change politically from early on in the state of Florida and where they're at now? Yeah, Steve, it, it seemed early on we had a common enemy, right? Like everybody was against the virus and we had to do everything we could to stop it. And at some point that changed and it's it's not clear why it changed, but unfortunately it does fall along party lines. Um, there was a study out recently that shows states or areas with higher amounts of Republican-leaning voters had more deaths from coronavirus um, and, and lower vaccination rates. And it's it's hard to put a finger on on why that might have happened, but uh, you know there the fact is that there is a certain number of people who are against getting vaccinated, and there are are politicians who hear those people and are listening and and creating legislation in response to that. Um, and here in Florida, you know, we've seen it. I mean, we've seen it with the governor who was seemed to be completely on board with vaccinating seniors first um, early on and was going from city to city promoting the vaccination and making sure everyone 65 and older who wanted it would get it. He was opening pop-up sites, you know, and and then eventually, once it once it was opened up to uh, other age groups, it didn't seem as though he was in, as enthusiastic about um, making sure 
that people were vaccinated. He never he has never come out against the vaccine, but uh, just he's not going city to city promoting it like he has for monoclonal antibodies, which was um, something that could help fight fight the virus once you had it. But it seems like there's a certain population out there that is anti-vaccination and or it, this vaccination, not not necessarily all vaccinations, but the coronavirus vaccine. And there are politicians that are listening to that population. All right, Dr. Sneed, he just mentioned monoclonal antibodies. How, how big of a part does this play in uh, in curbing the virus at all? Well, they've been shown monoclonal antibodies have been shown to be very effective at you know, preventing a very severe illness and hospitalization death. I think the challenge I have with monoclonal antibodies is the fact that, you know, we have something built in that can build something better, and it's called your own human body with vaccination. Uh, many people are not aware that the, the antibodies that come in monoclonal antibodies that actually came from a human being, uh, but they can be very effective. And, and the number one thing that we, that we want to accomplish with the monoclonal antibody or any antibody for this particular virus uh, we want to stop it from attaching on to the various internal organs. And we really haven't told the public, I think, enough about what the virus does in your body. You know, it, it attaches on to a very specific receptor called the ACE2 receptor that is part of your cardiovascular system on many organs. And we don't want it to attach on to those organs because if it attaches on, it will then replicate. And monoclonal antibodies can prevent that attachment and, and shut down that replication. But that's what vaccines do. And so um, I'm very much in favor of monoclonal antibodies. Any therapeutic that will keep people from becoming severely ill or being hospitalized or even dying, I'm going to be in favor of. But uh, we can do it much better. And it takes a long time to build those monoclonal antibodies. Well, there have been a lot of reports of people um, coming in and requesting, coming to hospitals and requesting homemade cures. Um, ivermectin, if I'm pronouncing that right. Yes. A lot of people have been mentioning that. Um, are you seeing a lot of that? Are you seeing a lot of people coming in or, or promoting that kind of maybe ideas that have not gotten a scientific factual basis behind it? Uh, I think in my own practice, again, I, I, I still maintain a clinical practice in our USF Health uh, Department of Family Medicine. Um, I've had a lot of people come in and, and um have it with a lot of curiosity. They're not asking for it, but they want to know what do I think. And, and I educate them on all the, the, the current science that we know, especially around ivermectin. Uh, you know, the hard part about ivermectin is the fact that you can go online and you can read competing studies. Um, but when you break down the real studies and, and what they really mean, uh, we have not found it to be a very effective therapeutic. And anything that you may accomplish with killing the virus in a Petri dish uh, we cannot replicate that inside of the body because of the dose it would take in order for that to be accomplished. And so for the overwhelming majority of people, ivermectin and, and other therapeutics like that would literally probably cause more harm than good early on. But, you know, on the flip side of that, when you pick up your phone and you can get ac access to information that will confirm your belief, uh, it's very difficult to explain that scientifically. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll resume our look at the year that was COVID. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. We're talking about how COVID-19 has progressed through the past year. Our guests are Kevin Sneed, founding dean of the USF Health Tunisia College of Pharmacy, and Julio Ochoa, editor of Health News Florida. All right. Well, the healthcare system was really pushed to its capacity in a lot of places, uh, you know, earlier this year. Hopefully we won't go through that again. Can either of you gentlemen talk about what we've learned from all this as far as fine-tuning our healthcare system to be able to combat with this kind of pandemic? I can share with you right now that one thing that we know because of the uh, how ferocious it's been uh, with the virus and the number of people coming in, that many people in healthcare are leaving healthcare. And and so at the time that we, you know, did not have enough people probably to uh, begin with, and we have a lot of people who are just burned out over healthcare now. You know, one thing that we have learned, we need to do, uh, number one, a much better job in terms of maintenance of the mental health status of our healthcare workers. Uh, we need to focus on that much more. Uh, we need to put systems in place that will help sustain their ability to provide healthcare to the public. And then number three, we're going to have to do a better job of, of making healthcare just part of all of our communities so that people understand the resource that, that it is and, and literally what it's not. I'll pause there, but uh, we we are literally in a, in a moment where we just don't have enough people moving forward. We're going to need far more nurses and, and physicians and pharmacists uh, moving forward because of the number of people who are going to leave the system. How do you convince people who have been through this and been thrust on the front lines when a lot of other people were able to zoom at home and, you know, behind the safety of their screens. It's, it's, a hard, it's hard to persuade them to come into this business anymore, isn't it? Uh, well, on, on the one hand, yes. Uh, I think we're finding a lot of people that have a sense of um, mission and purpose that are now wanting to get into healthcare and, and, and have found that. Uh, we just need to um, uh, amplify that a little bit more. But on the flip side of that comment, uh, I, I think you are correct that you know, if we don't do things like hazard pay for nurses, uh, if we don't do things in the way of, of uh, you know, creating an environment that, that creates a work-life balance for people, I think it's going to be a, a, very, a very big challenge moving forward. Anything you want to add, Julio? Everything you said is, is absolutely right. And if there's a positive that's come out of this, it's, it's uh, people think more about their mental health now, and you're finding that people are, are seeking out mental health care and it's more in the general conversation than it's ever been because this has had a huge impact on the mental health of, of people. So you're finding that more people are more open to seek out mental health care than it than had ever been in the past. And that's a good thing. And like Dr. Sneed said, that, that there's a lot of people out there that are mission-driven in the healthcare industry. And uh, you do see people who, because of coronavirus, are, are wanting to get into the industry. And, you know, I've seen it just with healthcare reporters, there's a lot of young people coming up who are very interested in, in reporting on this. So it could have that effect as well. Well, Dr. Sneed, you mentioned earlier that uh, there have been some stories that have kind of fueled your desire to keep battling away, hacking away at this, and, and keeping, you, keeping you in the business where other people might want to just hang it up and, and go, go move out to the country somewhere. Can you uh, talk about that with our listeners, please? Yeah, very much. Uh, all across the country, and even here in the Tampa Bay area, you know, you hear over and over again about the unvaccinated individual that's in their 30s, that's married, that has children, and they die. And 
these stories, they resonate with me because uh, part of the reason I, I got into healthcare to begin with is so that they could live a full life. You know, if a father dies in his 30s and has, you know, a daughter uh, and he was unvaccinated, well, in my mind, uh, he's forfeited an opportunity to walk his daughter down the aisle one day when hopefully she gets married and, and, and becomes a productive member of society. You know, when you hear stories of, you know, children coming home and infecting parents and the parents uh, died. But now those children are not going to have that parent there when they graduate and move on through life. And so, you know, the very same mission I had before in, in terms of treating people with diabetes and high blood pressure and, and things along those lines are have been amplified now because of the coronavirus. And it keeps me realizing that, you know, the reason we're here on this earth and this little marble floating through the universe, we all want to have a sense of meaning and purpose. And I think I'm allowed to, to be on this earth breathing air to help other people live that, that life and that dream. So uh, we're going to keep working really hard. Uh, I'm not concerned about people in the politics. I'm not concerned about their race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status or anything else. Uh, we want them to have an opportunity to live a full life. And right now, if we cannot protect them, then they're forfeiting their opportunity to have that full life. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end the show. Unless there's anything else you gentlemen want to say. Julio, you brought up something earlier just about people and their immunity, uh, and they feel that their natural immunity can, can, can withstand this particular virus. Well, uh, it's not completely true. Uh, we find that this particular virus uh, ha- has acquired a, a particular skill that, that other viruses have. Don't, don't get me wrong. This is not novel. But in my mind, it is enhanced in its ability to evade and hide from your early alert immune system. And I think that's a big part of what we saw with Delta over in the, over the summer and in here in the early fall, where literally the, the virus will infect you in your body. It has deactivated your body's ability to really understand that it's even there in the first couple of days. So it's replicating, and, and the early part of what your body would normally do in response to that is not active. Uh, it's evading that immune system. And by the time your body wakes up and realizes, you know, it's there, and now it's trying to generate its own antibodies, uh, very often, uh, especially with Delta, it just overwhelmed the system. And we found an enormous amount of people going into the hospital and young people going into the hospital that we hadn't seen before and people dying that had not been dying before. And so we have to help people better appreciate that, that the mRNA vaccines are there to turn on your early alert immune system long before you come into contact with the virus. And we haven't been able to articulate that more than people's fear of the fact that they don't understand. We've been researching, I mean, these vaccines now for 20 to 25 years. It's just the first opportunity. And so I think it's just a good opportunity to, to mention to people a little bit more about that. Yeah, I haven't. I hadn't heard that explanation of it before, and but it makes sense now. The stories that I hear about people who say, you know, I was fine, I didn't feel anything, and then I woke up, my lips were blue, and I went to the hospital because I had super low oxygen, and yeah. and then the person almost died, you know. Right. And but but they felt fine before before that day that they woke up and yeah. looked in the mirror. And again, it doesn't affect everybody the same way. Many people do survive. Overwhelming majority of people survive, but. I think with Delta, we now understood a little bit better with that high replication rate why so many people became so ill so quickly.
Well, that's it for today's show. Our thanks to Kevin Sneed, founding dean of the USF Health Tanaja College of Pharmacy and senior associate vice president for USF Health, and Julio Ochoa, editor of Health News Florida. Thanks for being on Florida Matters, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Steve Newborn. Our producer is Denora Prevost. Our engineer is Craig George. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another edition of Florida Matters. <laughs>